You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, we're sitting down with John Farragon to talk a little bit about antiretroviral therapy for folks with a history of treatment failure and resistance. Thanks so much for joining us as always, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana, for having me today. So, John, what do providers need to know about treatment for people who have recently been infected with HIV? Well, I think the most important thing in any Anybody who's doing HIV treatment knows these, these kind of principles, but you know, HIV infection treatment, it's gotten a lot easier for people um, who are recently infected because they really have the availability of a lot of a simplified treatment regimens. Um, and with the advent of, of antiretroviral therapy, highly active antiretroviral therapy, and use of some of these single tablet regimens, we really kind of made a big difference in people's lives. You know, I think right now, current guidelines um, recommend the use of an integrase inhibitor. So I think most people know that. Uh, in combination with one or two nucleoside reverse transcriptation inhibitors. That's for initial therapy. And so, you know, I think most providers know that provider that, you know, for new starts and people who are newly infected, this has really gotten a lot easier. And I think the the INSTEs, the integrated space regimens are really preferred over some of the treatment naive patients or some of the other regimens for treatment naive patients, because um, really what they've shown recently is that these have a lot of advantages over older regimens, you know, and then a lot of that's related to efficacy, tolerability, uh, and even risk of drug-drug interactions. Those are all minimized with some of our newer regimens that we have people on. So, Mariana, the reality, though, is that a lot of things happen when people are on antiretrovirals, and especially if they're on older drugs back in the day. And a lot of these patients with HIV um, often have significant resistance because uh, the meds didn't work for them. Uh, and, and a lot of times they require regimens that involve um, more than once daily dosing, you know, large pill burdens, and even potential uh, increased risk of drug-to-drug interactions and tolerability concerns. So these are all kind of complex issues that sometimes happen when people are on their second, third, or fourth regimen for HIV. So the, the big question it, it, we always ask is, how do patients get here? And I think if you think back to the way the antiretrovirals were years ago um, and what we have now, I think that's really the big difference is that the drugs are better now than what we had you know, even five to 10 years ago. And so if you think a lot of why this happens, I think you can put it into kind of three buckets. And I think the three buckets are really patient related. Um, They're either, or else they're HIV related and sometimes they're regimen related. So it's either patient, the virus, or else the regimen itself. And I think the patient related factors, I think really are probably the most common ones, I think in my mind, because these are really related to, to, to adherence, um, especially when people are taking multiple tablets a day. So some people may be missing 
uh, missing certain uh, certain doses daily. Uh, comorbidities that the patient has, especially um, substance abuse and mental health disorders, are really make things a lot more complex for some patients, and certainly for people who have serious mental health disorders and are really struggling a lot with substance abuse. This makes it a lot more a lot more difficult, and this obviously can lead to missed doses and adherence challenges. Some of the other psychosocial issues, I think, that are just kind of common that we see in our in our in, in our clinic, at least, and I'm sure in others as well. You know, housing is unstable, uh, lack of transportation. So how are they getting back and forth from the clinic? Some of the communication difficulties, you know, for example, just basic things like unpaid phone bills, right? Or lack of a cell phone. How do you get a hold of them to make appointments? I think it's all part of what makes this more, more complex and can lead to some missed clinic appointments. So, and the reality too is that some of the medication and her insurance issues that are related to some of the formula restrictions can also be a challenge. And sometimes it's also patients don't ante up for their insurance and then they have an insurance lap and they lose coverage. So that's kind of some of the patient factors, certainly not all of them, but um, the HIV related factors are also important. And that really is, is a, has a lot to do with maybe the pre- presence of transmitted or acquired drug resistance over time. So the, um, the HIV virus that the person has acquired um, may, may have drug resistance mutations that may lead to some drugs to failing. If they failed prior treatment uh, regimens um, uh, because they weren't as, as effective, um, and certainly innate resistance to certain HIV medications, and even some of the, the treatment viral loads, the pretreatment viral loads in, in CD4 counts can all contribute to virologic failure too. So it's harder to get people suppressed when they have higher viral loads, and that certainly played a significant role back in the day. So and finally, Mariana, you have the HIV regimen-related uh, factors, which I think are, are really important as it relates to what I do as a pharmacist, but suboptimal drug levels or pharmacokinetics, um, viral potency of the regimen may not be there. They may have a low barrier to resistance, which may lead to failure. And then sometimes you see some of these food requirements, some of the drug-drug interactions, and then even medication and dispensing errors can all lead to virologic failure. So those are kind of the kind of the, the last group that is kind of these HIV regimen related factors. So really the most important thing, you know, is that we have three basically buckets or, or categories. They're patient related, HIV related, and then regimen related issues that we see commonly is why people um, fail with, with, um, with, with resistance and have to go on another regimen, a second, third, fourth line regimen. Most important piece I think though of all of this is that whatever we do to when we optimize somebody's treatment regimen, because we're going to have to try to make changes to make sure that they get undetectable, it's crucial that the providers consider all of these factors um, and and know that a new regimen is not going to work in someone who's unwilling to take it. So open patient and provider communication is really the most important piece and is encouraged when when making a a regimen change. So that's, I think, the, the, the most important part. John, what can you tell us about resistance? Yeah, so I've alluded to this a little bit already in in the last section, but really a a critical component to really putting together a regimen that's going to work for somebody is to make sure that the resistance tests are obtained to to get an accurate, complete assessment of what they've had in the past from a resistance standpoint. So what we use here at Albany Med and other places do this too, there's a lot of pre-printed databases or pre-printed charts the ISUSA uh, HIV drug resistance mutations update, the Stanford database, all these are important to use. But we also try to use medication charts with the names and pictures of the meds so that the patient can actually help you remember, remember what prior regimens they've been on. Now, we do this in patients who a lot of times we may be seeing, uh, we may not have seen them throughout their entire treatment history. Some people we have, some we haven't. 
So especially if somebody's new to us, we kind of go back through that chart and say, you know, what are the, what are the meds that you've been on before? And usually they can point them out because they know because they were taking it every day. So normally they can figure it out from, from, the, from the picture of them. But typically what we try to do is try to get a regimen that contains three fully active drugs. It's not always possible, but if we have at least two active drugs, that sometimes can be, can be good enough. With the caveat that, at least from the guidelines, um, they recommend that the use of at least one drug with a high barrier to resistance, which would include either a second generation integrase inhibitor like doyotegavir or bictegavir or a regimen that contains uh, boosted darunavir. These are our most potent drugs for those people who have uh, treatment failure. Providers will also have to um, often combine meds for treatment experience patients to provide small pill burdens. So sometimes we wind up checking or using drugs that aren't typically used together in order to provide a regimen that's going to be less, uh, less likely to cause, um, uh, cause resistance and also to, to minimize the pill burden that the patient might have. Always make sure to check out drug interactions. That's important, not just among the HIV meds, but also in our other primary care meds, um, including the psych meds and recreational drugs or therapies that they might be on. The drug-drug interaction tables in the, in the DHHS guidelines are very good. So is hivdruginteractions.org. And we also have, um, as many of you may, may know at this point, at least out in the Google apps and are in the Google uh, store uh, and also pending on, on the Apple uh, Apple um, store, we're trying to get all those all of our apps out as well, uh, which hopefully by the time this is this is aired, you, you may actually have have those available. In terms of new drugs, what do providers need to know? Yeah, so there's a couple of new drugs that we can use. I think recent approval of certain meds really help people who have treatment experience. And, and, then, and one of the most important ones is probably Fustemsevir. Um, this is a newer medication. It's a novel class of medication known as attachment inhibitors, which is a, um, it's approved for the FDA for use in combination with other antiretrovirals, especially for these treatment experienced adults with um, resistance and we're failing their regimen. So data supporting its approval um, were from the Bright E study, um, which really demonstrated that in patients with prior extensive um, prior HIV treatment, some with zero fully active medications, uh, about 60% of subjects who received the drug were undetectable through 96 weeks of treatment. So again, very good numbers. I think what's interesting about this is that the people who had um, initial CD4 counts of less than 20, which is kind of our lowest kind of group of patients, right? From a CD4 count standpoint, they gained on average 240 additional cells through 96 weeks. So if you think about that, they're starting at 20, they gained 240, now they're roughly at like 260. If they're over 200, that's when that kind of really gets them out of the risk for a lot of the opportunistic infections that people get sick from when they have end-stage HIV. So that really makes a big difference to make sure those T cells are back up. So um, phosphatemps are well-tolerated, uh, nausea being the most common adverse event. Um, there are some drug interactions that are minimal, but you know some of the some of the C, some of the CYP3, 4 inducers are a problem. Um, what's nice about phosphatemps it can be combined with a lot of the common HIV regimens that we use. For example, darunavir, cobicistat is okay, dolutegavir, bictegavir, and even some of our non-nucleosides like rupivirine and deravirine are all okay as, as our tenofovir-containing regimens. That makes a, a, makes a big difference. This next one I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. We've had a couple of patients on it. We don't, we don't have a lot of people on it, but this is um, called ibilizumab. This is a CD4-directed post-attachment HIV inhibitor. So basically, it's a monoclonal antibody um, that's indicated for the use in heavily treatment-experienced patients. Long story short, uh, it's a two gram uh, infusion uh, load followed by a maintenance dose of 800 milligrams every two weeks. So this is a little bit more 
uh, more complex. And most patients have to go to an infusion center. They may be able to get like a home care company to bring the bring the infusion into them. Um, but our, all of our patients so far have actually gotten in the infusion center. And if patients, um, it's important that they not miss their maintenance dose because if it goes beyond three days, they actually have to reload the patient with a 2000 milligram dose. And that's complex and may, may, may need insurance approval, et cetera. So data supporting this was based on the, the, the TMB301 trial and which heavily treat, pre-treat, treated patients got ibilizumab with, with an optimized background and about at 25 weeks, about 43% of the patients attained an undetectable viral load. So again, you know, these patients are a little bit different than the fosfemsever patients. It's not exactly the same group. So just be careful when you're comparing numbers from studies, especially in these treat, pre-treatment patients, heavily pre-treated patients. But ibilizumab is another option as well that we might be able to, uh, to use for this population. What other new treatments can we keep our eyes peeled for? Yeah, so this is probably the most important one here, Mariana, is, is a drug called lenacapavir. So lenacapavir is, is a novel class of meds known as capsid inhibitors. Um, and the, some recent data from, um, from the Capella study was presented that's demonstrated high efficacy in, in these treatment experienced patients. Uh, patients had to have HIV resistance to at least two drugs from three out of the four common classes and no more than two fully active agents from any of the four classes. So what that means is that of all the drugs that we have available, only two of them were really could have been working. So that's really uh, a heavily treat, pre-treated, heavily treated experienced population. And then when they add the lenacapavir to it, um, 81% of subjects got a viral load under 50 copies and 89% were below 400 copies just at 26 weeks. So in addition to, um, to its efficacy, so it works really well, right? But lenacapavir is also unique in that it's, it's a long-acting sub-Q injection. And this actually lasts for six months. So this is actually one injection. And at 26 weeks, these are the results. And then they got another dose at 26 weeks. And we'll have to see what the 48-week results look like. But again, this is a one once a month shot that patients could take. And this is being looked at in other, in other treatment, not just treatment experience patients, but also for PrEP, right? That would be a big, a big uh, I think a big difference if it was every six months, a huge difference for patients. But again, injection site reactions are really the problem. The redness, the swelling, and the pain can occur. And these reactions generally resolved within two weeks in most patients. Some people had some, some lingering effects from that. So that's important to know. But again, it's just other options that we would have. So you got the, the Fostemsevir, the Ibilizumab, and then investigational Lenacapavir, which hopefully will be approved um, uh, soon. And when it's approved, we'll actually obviously probably do another, another podcast on that, um, talking about the, the approval uh, as well. But right now, the FDA has not decided on Lenacapavir at this point. As we begin to wrap up, what are some key takeaways for providers? Yeah, so I think this is a good one for, for providers. I think optimizing the treatment, I think, really can be challenging. I think we have great meds, but you know, some of these success rates are not, uh, not as robust in, in the complex patients. Um, despite these challenges, I think attaining and maintaining an undetectable viral load is really our main goal in making sure we get their CD4 counts up. Uh, I think resistance tests are crucial in, in trying to construct the appropriate regimen. And clearly the use of some of these newer medications like fostemsevir and ivalizumab and potentially lenacapavir if it's, if it's granted FDA approval, really provides some novel mechanisms of action to combine with older meds to construct regimens that will um, be enough to hopefully provide a virologic response. I think providers have to be encouraged really to work closely with the patients though. In this setting, I think there's a lot of reasons why patients fail. And if you don't understand that and you just give them another drug regimen with another four or five pills, six pills, and they're not gonna take it, 
just going to get you in the same spot you were now. So really making sure that you have these open conversations with patients, especially if it involves some of these infusions or injectable medications, making sure they're willing to take them, I think will really make a difference in, in, um, in whether or not you're successful in suppressing uh, the, the patient's virus. John, thanks so much for joining us today and telling us about ART for folks with a history of treatment failure and resistance. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.necaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaaetc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.